we finally, after, after three tries, uh, were able to do a river cruise in Europe. We, uh, we joked with ourselves, made fun of our upper middle class life when each year, because of COVID, then I got COVID, we weren't able to go on the cruise, right? And they kept giving us vouchers. And so we would, we would joke and say, oh, woe, woe are we, for we are sore afflicted. Our European cruise got postponed. You know, this is in the middle of pandemics and invasions of Ukraine and refugees around the world. So we quickly got over our disappointment that finally we were able to go. So um, bring that first slide up, if you would. In, in the theme of home, uh, we're doing a, a series around Luke 15. I'm going to home in on uh, the parable that's usually called the parable uh, of the prodigal son. I'm calling this uh, Jesus and Rembrandt bring it home. Now, um, some of you may know that I have this love affair with a painting by Rembrandt. It happened to be his last painting. Uh, and Brent, Rembrandt had a very up-and-down life. He had some serious successes, some serious failures, uh, some serious rebellions. But at the end of his life, and he's, he's been called the most biblical poet or biblical painter because so many, dozens and dozens and dozens of sketches and paintings came from biblical scenes. But this was his last painting. Now, in calling this Jesus and Rembrandt, I am not giving them equal billing uh, or standing, all right? But there is something unique about this painting of Rembrandt's that helps to drive home the intent of Jesus with these parables in Luke 15. In an unforgettable way, I think it imprints our imaginations uh, to see something so visually uh, captivating. And so that's, that's what we want to do. And that's why we're looking at Rembrandt as we uh, also dive a little deeper into Luke 15. So what I'd like to do is to give you, again, the context of Luke 15, what's going on in Jesus' life and ministry, uh, and then we'll have a stand if you're able to, uh, to read the parable itself. Okay, so here's how the first two verses open the context for Luke chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. Now, you know, when you hear sinners in this kind of context, uh, we know that we all fall short and we all sin, right? But sinners is almost a technical term for those socially unacceptable, marginalized sinners that the religious establishment had put on the, on the, the really bad list. And Jesus just loved to gravitate and eat, not only with those sinners, but those especially uh, difficult people called tax collectors who were Jews working for the Romans to collect taxes and contribute to the oppression that they were going through, okay? So tax collectors, noble occupation today, not so much then. Tax collectors and sinners and Jesus would eat with them and he became known, it became a distinctive of his ministry and it was actually a very important way in which the master teacher taught us was by eating as well as by parables. Okay, so he's eating with, drawing near to tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees, the devout keepers of the law, the scribes, grumbled, saying, this man receives or welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
And then Jesus tells two short parables. We call it the parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and the, they're, they're very parallel, these short, uh, short parables, these short stories, and they basically have simple ingredients. Something is lost that is precious. The owner of that lost sheep or coin searches diligently. It's found. There's rejoicing, and they invite other friends and, and relatives and family, community, in to celebrate with them. And then Jesus, each time, makes a parallel, okay? That lost object, that rejoicing that's going on, that parallels what happens in the heavenly realms with God and the angels every time a person, people, actually turn from being away from God or rebelling toward God or, and come more toward God and then actually are brought into the family of God. That, that produces a celebration in heaven, all right? So, just one word about parables, and then I want us to look again at the parable of the prodigal son. And parables were very important ways in which Jesus taught. He gave 40 of them. And parables did two things. Parables had the intent of waking us up about the true nature of God, who he is and how he works. Parables have the, the way of waking us up to our own humanity, who we are and who we can become if we become all that God designed us to be. All right? So I invite you, if you're able, to stand. And let's uh, read this third parable of Luke 15. And I'm going to test your short attention span. We're going to read the whole thing, okay? So give, give your attention. Sometimes things that might be slightly familiar to some of you, sometimes it's harder to, to actually pull back and take a fresh look. And by the way, you can never exhaust the depths of any scripture, especially those which have become more known to us. Okay, here's the parable. So Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. That's probably mild. Okay? And when he had spent everything, his severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing at some point then to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. So in the, he's creating a story here. And, and one of the questions that naturally would come in here was, what's a nice Jewish boy like you doing feeding pigs at all for whatever reason, right? Okay, so here he is lost. He's destroyed his life. He's, he's ruined. He's spent all he has. He's eating with pigs. He has nothing to eat. And it says, when he came to himself or came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? With hunger. I know what I'll do. 
I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, and he prepares a speech. He's going to say to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father sees him, father sees him and says, He said he felt compassion for him. And then the father runs down the road and embraces him and kisses him. The son begins his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You just get this sense of the father going, stop. And it says, the father says to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet And you know that calf we've been fattening up for the really special celebration? Kill the fattened calf. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine, this my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You can hear music in the background. You wonder where that song came from? No. Now, that's, for many of us, I think, growing up, if you've been around this parable at all, there's a tendency to almost stop there. We, We get this beautiful parable, right? No one is outside of the realm of God's reach. No one, no one is, is lost or can, can destroy his life or get to the end of himself. God is always going to be there to welcome us back. Is that good news? Yeah, but it's not the whole story. And in some ways, it's not the primary intent of the parable. As important as that is, as central as that is, there's another scene. Last scene. Now, his older son, His older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant, and he said, your your brother, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother, obviously the older brother said, that is such good news. No. (laughs) He was angry, and he refused to go in. Go in where? To the party, to the celebration. He refused to go into the celebration. His father comes out of the celebration and comes to him and entreats him, begs him. But the older brother answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> Yet you never gave me even a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, we do that as parents, don't we? Our children are acting up. Your child is acting up, right? (laughs) This son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father says to the older son, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate. We had to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother (laughs) was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. 
end of parable. Before we ask the question that lingers in our minds, like, how's it, how's it end? Let's look at the progression of what happened in this parable. You may be seated. Okay, on these next three uh, slides, I've, I've put just brief descriptions of a progression. We don't have time to go into the details of this, but just to give you a, a sense, again, of how, how wonderful this is all put together and all of the, the richness that it proclaims. All right, here's the first one. By the way, the parable has often been called, rightly, a different title. Instead of the parable of the prodigal son, it's actually the compassionate father and the two lost sons. Okay? Okay, here's what happens. The father has en- is enduring the pain of rejected love. Who do you think the father is in this parable? Who's Jesus relating it to? God, the father, right? The father has endured the pain of rejected love in order to restore his child. The son comes to himself, to his senses, to the end of his resources. He suddenly sees and admits to himself where his pride has taken him. And he's at the end of his rope. And three, he turns toward home with deep regret. He admits he's wrong, but he's still, and this has been brought home to me through Kenneth Bailey, who wrote 50 years in Middle East and wrote three books on the prodigal son. He points out that uh, you know, he still has a plan to save himself, right? I know what I'll do. I'll just, I'll just ask to be a servant. That's his plan. Is that the father's plan? No. Okay? So, so look what happens. The father, in self-emptying love and compassion, embraces the son while he's still on the road and runs down the road to meet him. It's been pointed out that the father, who represents obviously a wealthy uh, landowner, a, a community elder, as it were, would never, never run in public. Jesus puts that little, that little nuance that he runs down the road to meet him. That's how extravagant and over the top is this love and compassion and, and desire to see his son. The son is broken, surrenders completely to the father's love and accepts, we, we assume, accepts his embrace and his apparent restoration. Number six is there's a gracious offer by the father and the full restoration of the son to his role as a son. Thus, the robe, the ring, right? Those are all sonship issues. And and then the celebration. Now, it's easy to, uh, to again, end our thinking about the parable at that point, but it's not the end of the story. Because the last section of this parable with the older son entering the picture, we see these very important facts. The older brother hears of the party, responds with resentment, not with joy and gratitude. He refuses to go into the joy of the celebration uh, for the return of his lost brother. The father searches out his older brother, urges him to change his mind and join in the celebration. He pleads with the older son to reconsider based on the good news of his brother's coming return and restoration. Okay, now, Remember that dangling? I said we have a dangling question here. Something is left dangling. The father has come out 
pleaded with the older brother, saying, we had to celebrate. Please come in. What's the question? Jesus, unspoken question. What is it? Does the older brother what? Does he turn around? Does he repent, as it were? Does he turn and decide to change his mind and actually go in, not just go in, but also his heart attitude and actually embrace what's going on, the good things that are happening, to put aside his resentment? What's going on in the brother, the older brother? Resentment, pride, rebellion, self-righteousness. Is it just toward the brother? <laughs> it's toward the father, all right? Um, I want you to notice something. The unique thing about this painting, think about how hard this is. You have a story of three acts, and you're a painter, and you want to paint the prodigal son. He could have made a YouTube video and showed three, three scenes, right? Did they have YouTube in 1600s? No. The painter, he's a master painter. What's he do? Somehow, he's got to ask the question, what do I want to focus on? And so in some ways, he, he doesn't do it in sequence, right? He has, he has things coming together all at once. He has the obvious reunion of the younger brother being embraced by the father, but here's this other figure over here that's lit up as well. Who do you think that represents? Okay, you got, you got three main characters that are lit up in this painting, okay? You got the father. His hands are on the, the son's shoulders, right? He's all tattered and torn. By the way, if you look really close, when you, if you, you know, Google it and look closer, Rembrandt painted it with two totally different hands. One is a man's hand, that's Rembrandt's probably, and the other is obviously a woman's hand. Tough and tender? Not sure. But who's, who's the third character? Who's the other person that's lit up? Way over on the other side. Who do you think that represents? The older brother. The older brother. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. Who are the people in the middle? No clue. Uh, some think it, it could be like the tax collectors, uh, you know, or whatever. Who knows? Because he's focusing on what's lit up. Now, does anything strike you when you look at that painting in terms of how uh, Rembrandt spaces the characters? Rembrandt has made an obvious distance, both distance and angle from the father and the younger brother and the older brother. What is it? He's not only distant, he's looking down. There is an obvious condescension, not only toward the younger brother, but toward his father. Let me just toss in something to meditate on. Do you ever find yourself looking down on God, the father? You ever find yourself looking down on other people? Say, oh, yeah, yeah. Do you ever find yourself looking down on God? We would never admit that. 
But where do we sometimes go really quickly when tragedy strikes, when chaos hits the world? Where are you, God? That's another sermon. <laughs> Just wanted to point that out. Just, that struck me uh, in a fresh way this time. Okay, so Henry Nouwen, who wrote a whole book on this, made this comment, and I think it's, it's just absolutely brilliant and essential. You could obviously look at the younger brother who gets the main attention all the time, right? This is the one who's, who's a hot... Even somebody who has never read anything in the Bible may often use this... If you talk to them about their family, they say, oh yeah, I was the bad kid. You know, I was the prodigal. I was the prodigal son. Meaning I'm the one who sort of rebelled wildly and took off and made a ruckus and I was, you know, I made the front pages of rebellion. Now one points out that the younger brother is the hot rebel, but he's not the only rebel because the older brother is a rebel too. What do you think he calls him? The cold rebel. There's hot rebels and there's cold rebels. The older brother is a cold rebel, seething in self-righteousness, ingratitude, very much focused on himself, okay? And also looking down at his brother because he's not major up. He's judging his brother as well as judging God, okay? It's not just the younger brother who needed a 180-degree turn. Let me just uh, give you a, a quote by Tim Keller, who recently died, a wonderful teacher and pastor. I love this description, summary of the gospel, the good news. The good news is this. We are more <clears throat> sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. At the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Isn't that beautiful? Let that sink in. There's a lot we could unpack about the parable and, and that scripture, but I want to venture into the arena of asking another kind of question. Oh, by the, by the way, um, another word about the older brother. Who do you think Jesus' audience in this parable is? Who's he primarily speaking to? Why does he decide to tell this parable? Is it for the tax collectors and sinners that he's been meeting with? Uh, is he talking just to the disciples? How do we know, or do we know, who he's talking to? We know by verse 1 and 2. It's those who are grumbling, who are calling him out, who are condemning him. You, you call yourself a rabbi, and you're eating with them? Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. And who does he want them to identify with? The older brother. That's who the older brother represents. 
All right. I'd like to suggest that we ask some questions of ourselves, or that Jesus would ask us some questions surrounding this parable. The biggest question I think he would ask us anytime we read one of his parables uh, would be uh, simply, um, do you get it? Do you get the parable? Are you paying attention? I don't mean did you get it in terms of the fact that you could do some teaching on it or that you understand it or you agree with its teaching or doctrines, but do you get it? Do you get what might need to change? Do we get Jesus' main intent? Um, Jesus' parables are always designed to lead us to awareness, attention, and action. So do we get Jesus' intent? Two or three things. Do we get his intent that this is all about compassion and acceptance in the actions of the Father that mirrors the very heart of God, even toward the older brother? Do we get it? We get it. You see, do you know what I think Jesus wanted to say to those Pharisees and religious leaders? You are condemning me for eating with tax collectors and sinners, but if you understood the heart of God in line with the father of the parable who is filled with love and compassion and grace and runs down the road to reach lost people... You wouldn't be condemning me. You'd be joining me. You'd be celebrating with me because that's the heart of God and you've missed it. You are bringing people down with a load of rules and laws and interpretations of the beautiful law and teaching of God. You've turned into an oppressive system of insiders and outsiders that miss the heart of things. Do we get it? Do we get that? Do we get it that it's about the kingdom of God is not a future pie in the sky distant thought? The kingdom of God has arrived with Jesus. Jesus is announcing I am proclaiming that this kingdom that you are longing for is present here and now. Thus the prayer that I taught my disciples, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' table fellowship, that's a technical term in biblical scholarship, table fellowship. In other words, eating together. Jesus Daring to eat together, not just with the insiders, but with the outsiders, was just a, a wonderful way of proclaiming his main message. The kingdom has arrived. Do we get it? One more thing. Do we, do we get that it's about celebration and joy? Again, to the question, how could you eat with those people? Jesus' answer in ours would be, this is where lost and hurting people are found, healed and restored, people in God's very image, people created to live with God. 
Why wouldn't I be with everyone who I can reach and connect with? The ordinary encounters of our daily lives are designed to be those places where we reach people and value people, enjoy the people around us, not just tolerate, not ignore, not discriminate, not start by evaluating, judging them, pigeonholing them, and putting them in boxes, not by drawing lines and boundaries that start by saying, oh, by the way, are you inside or out? Because I feel better just being with insiders. No, no, it means that our, our daily life is filled with these wonderful opportunities to celebrate with God over those who are moving toward God. You probably, I'm, I would guess Pastor Van has shared this in the past or you've read it other places. We sometimes wanted to look at the way God operates as though it's a, it's a, t- a tight boundary and you're either in or you're out. What Jesus does, he's, he asks the question, more in terms of arrows. Are you moving toward me or are you moving away from me? And the people that were moving away from him were the people that were most religious and proud that they were in the inside. The people who were moving toward him were the people who were lost, but recognized they were lost, that they didn't have righteousness. They didn't have right standing with God. They wanted to be made to be with God. So many questions we could ask. And here, I just urge you, Um, ponder the parable. Keep pondering as you go through this series. Ponder all of the implications uh, for our lives. I leave you with with one question. Um, That an older Christian, which is getting harder to say as I get older, an older Christian who's a foremost authority in leadership in, in church world and outside church world, John Maxwell, one time was, was speaking to thousands and thousands of people on a global leadership event. And he sat on a stool and he got to the place of talking about what was most important. And he said something that has stuck with me and stuck, I think, with everybody who heard him. That doesn't mean I'm faithfully learning to apply it. But here's what he said. There is a question we must get right. Are we going to spend our lives connecting with people? Or are we going to spend our lives trying to correct people? I cannot add value to people if I don't value them. Why are we facing declines in, in, the, in the, the, the church world? I think part of it is that people aren't seeing the welcoming you know, character of Jesus enough. They're, not, they're sensing correction and, and polarization and they're sensing ins and outs instead of are you coming toward or away. There's, there's a sense in which we are losing perhaps the importance of first connecting with people. Correcting is above our pay grade, usually, except your children. (laughs) All right? I just leave you with that question. Think about the heart of God that Jesus is communicating through this parable. And let 
let these uh, very, very important intents of Jesus shake us up a little bit. Ask not just, do I know this? Do I agree with it intellectually? But am I experiencing the God of love and compassion and then allowing him to empower me to embody that to everybody I meet?